The woman pushed on the baby's stomach and sucked its penis into her mouth. It was thinner than the American menthol she smoked, and a bit slimy, like raw fish. She was testing to see if the baby would cry, but the little arms and legs were still, so she peeled away the plastic wrapping over its face. She lined a cardboard box with towels, laid the baby inside, and taped the box shut. Then she tied it with string and wrote a made-up name and address on the side in big print. Her breasts started to ache again just as she finished doing her makeup and was about to put on a polka dot dress. They were still swollen with milk, but she stopped for a minute to rub them, without bothering to wipe up the whitish liquid that dripped on the carpet. Slipping on her sandals, she left the apartment with the box. As she got into a cab she'd held, her mind was on the lace table mat she was making. It would be done soon, and she decided to put it under the pot of geraniums. The heat had made her a little dizzy, which wasn't surprising since the man on the radio said it was breaking records. Six people, most of them elderly or unwell, had already died. She got out at the station, went straight to the coin lockers, and shoved the box into an empty one in the back row. Wrapping the key in a sanitary napkin, she disposed of it in the toilet, then left the station, which was stifling, for the comfort of a department store. When she cooled down a bit after a cigarette in the restroom there, she did some shopping. Pantyhose, nail polish, bleach. She had an orange juice, then went to the ladies again to put on the nail polish. Around the time she was finishing the thumb of her left hand, the baby, half suffocated in the dark box, broke out in a sweat. At first it was just a little dampness on the forehead and chest, perhaps under his arms. But soon he was wet all over and his temperature began to drop. Finally, his fingers twitched, his mouth opened, and he let out a tremendous wail. It was the heat. No one could have gone on sleeping in a damp, double-sealed box like that. The heat had started the baby's blood pumping, which woke him up. And so, just 76 hours after he first emerged between his mother's legs, he was virtually born again in a hot coin locker. The baby continued to cry until he was found. Hi everybody and welcome to Agitator. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Kelby Losack. And today we are talking about 1980s Coin Locker Babies, which was published in America in 1995 with a beautiful psychedelic rave cover and then republished again more recently by Pushkin Press with an insanely boring high contrast black and white design that is found everywhere in popular fiction these days to talk about this book. We have a guest who I'm super excited to have on. We have Zach Langley Chichi from the I'm So Popular podcast. What's up, Zach? Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Um, I just uh, woke up. I had like a few too many margaritas last night, but uh, finished the book this morning and uh, was just uh, in ecstasy reading it and love both of you so much. So I am very honored to be here. Thank you all. Awesome. Oh, yeah. It's bizarre having your your voice on our show. Your voice has been in my head for like so many hours listening to <laughs> so popular. Yeah, I wanted to say that um, I was very you know flattered that you put me in the mentions of your book and the acknowledgments. I thought that was the sweetest thing, especially after uh, 
I, I finished it and was just obsessed. I, I thought it was um, probably the most exciting piece of new fiction I, I've read in like three years, honestly. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah, no, like you and like Jack and Orton from Perfume Nationalist and like just a few people from that, that kind of circle have uh, done, well, we talk about it in like the second episode of the show, like that that kind of helped our mental fog, our creative like fog that we we're traversing kind of like silent hill style trying mm-hmm. to get through all the all the monsters and come out the other side like yeah that it was like just because you're just all about aesthetic beauty and like positivity in a like not corny way you know like i just can't um as a practical person who likes to fix things or like, okay, what's the solution? What do we do now? All the doomer shit doesn't resonate with me. Cause it's just like, okay, what do we all kill ourselves or what? Like, so having something that focuses more on uh, beauty and art and like the relevance and importance of that is refreshing. Well, there's like a wonderful feedback loop, I think in this, kind of art scene because when I was really struggling with my writing, which like happens to me every four months and all of a sudden I just like hate everything I'm doing. Um, that's mm-hmm. when I started picking up Agitator and listening to you two, like frankly discuss writing in such a non-pretentious and encouraging way. Um, my God, it was like such a breath of fresh air and I was able to like get so much more work done after I started listening to the show. So I love that this little, you know, art community is all pushing each other in a different directions back and forth. It's really beautiful to me. I think so too. I, one thing I like about your show, and this might seem like a small thing. I like that you use the word cunty a lot. (laughs) I was walking through my house the other day and I was like, I saw some, uh, they're called marbles of Peru. It's this nice bush that's growing in my backyard. And I thought the word cunty i was like that's a cunty bush and i don't know if i'm using that right but i don't and i don't know if i was just brain poisoned by i'm so popular but it's just fun you know so it's fun to call things cunty yeah no i mean a cunty is in your spirit that's one of the main themes of my show honestly there's like boots leg wig twirl cunty serving boots like all of that nonsense but like sometimes you know a beautiful bush in your house that you can see the life cultivated in is absolutely cunty. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Life needs mantras. That's- it does. All right. So Zach, for our listeners, I, I feel like this is all a very incestuous podcast uh, sphere, but can you give us a little, you have a very interesting life oh, thank uh, you. that you're, that you're living right now. So you live in Japan, you live small town, Japan, correct? Like you live- Actually, um, I used to, I lived in like rural Mie up until last year. And then I, I ditched my day job to do a, um, a more corporate day job. And now I live in Shinjuku in Tokyo. Ooh, Shinjuku. Okay, That's right. I'm very familiar with that. Never been, uh, but I've seen a lot of Mie movies. They're all in <laughs> Kabukicho, uh, 
I think I'm saying that. I'm not sure if I'm saying that. No, right. yeah, you but, are. Kabuki show is uh, visible from my, my balcony. It's like a 20 minute walk. That's so dope. Okay. I'm excited about this. I'm getting hyped. Okay. So, uh, and you put on drag performances in this area, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So I got into drag in Japan about three years ago. And I started doing uh, performances for like these foreigner parties in Nagoya, which like kind of like almost transparent blue adjacent and like mm-hmm. uh, like very decadent people like having like orgies in the toilet and stuff. Um, Whoa. Yeah, pretty, pretty grisly. And then I kept going down the path until I ended up uh, working at a hostess bar um, as a drag queen there. And uh, at that point, it was just like, almost transparent blue like every day of the week endless like <laughs> endless orgies like you know nightmare uh, sexuality like happening uh and um when I moved to Tokyo I, I stopped hostessing but I uh have recently been performing again with kind of like a alternative drag horror house or something uh they're nice people and <laughs> they let me uh do uh gore on stage so uh we're, it's all working out lovely that's so dope. I love drag. My wife would take me to drip before we had a kid. That was kind of our nightly routine or our weekend routine. I should say we didn't go every night. I don't even know if there are drag shows every night, but yeah, in El Paso, we on the drag tour circuit, a lot of the kind of be real of, or sometimes maybe even see real of RuPaul's drag race would come through and put on shows. And so we'd go out there and it's just, yeah, it's just a fun environment. Um, I'm interested in this horror aspect though, because I think I saw on Twitter that you uh, like committed seppuku on stage or something like that. That seemed pretty cool. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I I don't know. I've always felt like, um, at least for me, like drag is a kind of like grisly and disgusting and frightening Mm inherently and um of course like half of the work of drag is like creating some tragic glamorous image that's like actualizing gay horror or whatever so most of that is like done through like overstated femininity but I've always like kind of looked I like like to look a little bit like a crossdresser and like more like a tranny like because it's more fun um and uh then doing something really grisly has always attracted me so like I um I've like pulled like chains uh, out of my pussy before, um, spilled like pink shit all over me. And then most recently I like taped a bag of fake blood to my corset and then stabbed it with a real knife on stage to a Bjork song. So <laughs> that's <laughs> so dope. dope. That's punk rock. <laughs> that is punk rock. That's fucking dope. What brought you to Japan? Well, um, when I was in college, I was really fucking broke. So I like, couldn't study abroad or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And I knew I wanted to like go somewhere after college with my little English degree. Because, um, you know, I've always wanted to live the art life. So as long as I have, uh, you know, a visa and a roof over my head, that's kind of been enough for me. So I took a, a teaching job to come uh, visit Japan. But uh, I ended mm-hmm. up f- falling in love with the country um, I had a serious boyfriend at the time who I thought I was going to, like, live my whole life with. Um, and now I, like, can't imagine going back. So I'm just, like, stuck here. <laughs> what 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 happened to the boyfriend? Um, we broke up because <laughs> I knew I couldn't teach anymore because uh, it just seemed like something I wasn't going to be able to do for the rest of my life. And I was waking up full of dread every day. 
So mm-hmm. I moved to Tokyo to take a better job, and uh, then we broke up. Bummer. I hate Bummer. That happens. <laughs> but it's it was all worth it for the you know overarching narrative of I'm so popular. But um, no, I mean I've always like loved uh, Japanese literature, and I was like a big weeaboo in middle school, and then like I got back in touch with uh, Japanese art like early in college, uh, when I like refell in love with Evangelion. Uh, and uh, went through like the entirety of uh, Mishima's uh, oeuvre and uh, I just knew I had to like come see the country that produced this stuff firsthand. And do you do you speak Japanese? I do. Okay, I did not so when did, I got here. <laughs> did you did you read this book in Japanese? Certainly not. Um, okay. You know, this, this is quite a long <laughs> book. Um, it is. When, yeah. when we uh when you, you first suggested that we we're going to do Murakami Ryu, I was like, oh, I'll actually read this one in Japanese because uh, his books are like usually very slim. And then when I went to the bookstore and saw it was like in two very long volumes, I said, okay, I'm going to do this one in English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one thing that's interesting about languages different than English. When I had my second novel translated into French, in English, it's a 200 page book. It's a novella. It's a long novella. In France, it's like 400 pages. And they were explaining to me that English is somewhat unique in its ability to truncate and put a bunch of big concepts into smaller words. <clears throat> but when it gets translated into French, you end up with these big tomes. So I wonder if Japanese isn't similar to that, because this runs about 500 pages in English. But if it's two volumes, that's got to be close to double. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, is that I think Japanese is actually a very concise language. Um, okay. Many people will often give you the idea that it's uh, kind of verbose and mechanical and difficult to push through, but I think that just becomes uh, a struggle for people unfamiliar with kanji characters because uh, once you can even get the vague idea of what they mean, even if you don't know the exact meaning, you can like fly through these sentences that are just so packed with... Uh, with information there'll be like you know it'll be like a 10 word sentence or something and it has like so much uh really richly beautifully detailed uh, pieces of information so i think that's kind of uh, why people think it's a a bloated language but um they they publish these books like you know written vertically and uh, the pages always have a lot of space on them so that's usually why they end up dividing longer novels into two volumes that's important for the aesthetics. Kelby and I talk about that a lot. We wish that more print books in the U.S. gave more breathing room to the text. Um, large print books are pretty good about this pe- for people who can't you know, see very well. But there's nothing more depressing than picking up a book and opening it and seeing you know, 11 or 12 point times new well it wouldn't it wouldn't be times in roman it'd be like garamond or something but mm-hmm. still you know the, it's just these big bricks of text that don't seem very appealing so i like i think that there's something to the experience of reading when you have a lot of white space on the page so that's cool to hear that they do that in yeah Japan. and um, kelby you, kelby's book is it has lots of beautiful white space in it and uh, these mm-hmm. great margins that make it a really like lovely experience to read through like um just a few weeks before that I was reading um Madame Bovary like a, a penguin edition of it and it was just like so packed and like all of like the letters were like printed in smaller font and it just uh 
depresses you, whereas like all those wonderful blank spaces uh, give you so much life. Cunty. Yeah, it's kind of, the, the Lydia <laughs> yeah, Davis translation. The Lydia Davis translation of that is is better. It's better in terms of its presentation. But um, well, I guess we can get into the book. And this is such a huge book. I don't have any expectation uh, for linearity or you know, obviously covering everything in the book. But I thought we'd start with initial impression so kelby you want to start us off on this just kind of a general clb talk so the my initial impression was that murakami does coming of age really well well he does uh kids really well that like Mm -hmm. feeling of pause (laughs) phrasing (laughs) (laughs) phrasing yes no, he um, he does. He captures that like uh, balance between hyper reality and like dream logic that, you know, kids just think like the thought process is it's like third person omniscient, but he goes like into their thought processes on things and it'll, uh, yeah, I'm grasping for exact examples, but like, you know, it, it's just the every single time it's like oh that that's a hundred percent how the like the way kids think about shit um and how the narrative is a nothing nothing conventional about it whatsoever like it's kind of like the novel version of that movie boyhood i imagine Mm -hmm. like i didn't see that movie but like i know how it's like following these characters (laughs) from this age all the way up to adulthood and everything and uh which is what coin locker babies is which i didn't buildings roman yeah it's called yeah 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 they're they're building romans Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so the whole yeah my impressions were just like the entire time what am i reading because of the the unconventional structure the um childlike logic of the whole th- the, they like persist even when they grow up like they kind of still have this childlike view of everything in the book itself you know the the narrative has this dream childhood logic to everything that happens and this is great surrealism that's sort of a uh, you can buy into it really easily because I feel like if somebody said, yeah, this book was based on true events, I'd be like, damn, okay, that's crazy. And yet it's like extremely surreal. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think um, something that was really special to me about this uh, and honestly, all of uh, Murakami's stuff is that he really is like such a visceral writer. Like, everything that he puts onto the page in terms of like how he establishes psychology and setting really kind of reaches into your gut and then twists. So um, walking away from this, I just like had one of the most clearly imagined Tokyo's I've ever read in fiction. And uh, this incredible like sense of uh, 
like horror in these like two twin characters, but I was just a, like really flattened by the book, which is the same experience that I have with every Murakami basically. Yeah, it probably hit me. The The biggest shocker in any Murakami book is in the Miso Soup uh, when mm. Frank uh, stuffs an ear into a dead woman's pussy. I felt like that was, uh, that made my guts feel weird. Um, I cried reading that actually. It's the only time I've ever like, so gross. cried out of disgust in a book because it was so upsetting. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we talked about this on the In the Miso Soup episode with, with Adam, but it's so frank, I guess no pun intended, in how it's depicted that it really, it makes everything hurt that much more. And that that's in Coin Locker Babies as well. There are some particularly uh, fucked up gross out moments i'm thinking particularly when kiku goes to tokyo to look for hashi and you know some sleazy guy says hey i know where your brother is you have to go talk to this guy and he's directed to this claustrophobic hot kind of record store where a guy with a huge pimple goiter on his neck starts trying to feel him up and suck his dick and stuff and he ends up stabbing the guy in the in the pimple thing <laughs> and a bunch of pus drips into his hand. And uh, by the way, this might be a good time to mention that this book, if you look at the Goodreads uh, stats on this book, it is sharply, sharply divided. There are five stars and there are one stars and there's not much in between. And the one stars are all basically like this is a disgusting book which I feel isn't a fair criticism because the book begins with uh, Kiku being put in the coin locker as a baby. And the first line, which Kelby's going to do a reading of the, the first page that we'll tack on to the beginning of this episode. But right. the very first line is a woman uh, sucking the baby's dick to see if he's cognizant, to see if he's aware of his surroundings before she wraps him in plastic and puts him in a coin locker. So I don't know. I feel like this whole, like this book is gross. Uh, isn't really fair because it tells you what it is off rip. There's no way that you can't get through that first sentence and know exactly where this is going. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I feel like, um, especially with like these Japanese novels that they kind of mass translated in the nineties, there was kind of like, um, like a book club, appeal to them so like mm -hmm. uh spicy moms at the book club would like pick like one japanese novel like every year to like you know do their little ethnic diversity thing um and i can imagine that this is like one of the books that would get you know passed into the into the circle and you can kind of all imagine them uh seething but despite how like repulsive and uh abject so much of this book is like it's a, a huge like uh, touchstone in japan they made like a, a musical out of it five years ago. Uh, and they oh. had like um, two Johnny's idols, which are like the pretty boy idols that uh, I've talked about before in my show. But like uh, they had mm -hmm. two of uh, like Johnny's idols playing the the, the, the the coin locker babies. So, wow, that's that's kind that's kind of awesome. I think that, um, yeah, the cultural impact of this book is massive because I knew that. Kodansha uh, 
printed it in the U.S., Kodansha International, printed it in 1995. It had that awesome cover with the, I don't think it had French flaps. It had an almost uh, VHS slipcase feel to the, the plastic material that they used for the covers. And it was uh, just such a standout on the shelf at Barnes and Noble when I was in high school circa, you know, 02, 03. And I kept, you know, picking it up and reading a few pages. And for whatever reason, I never kind of dove into that. But it's when they initially published that, um, I, the whole time I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, this is where Miike gets his whole style from, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Miike's films are essentially uh, Murakami novels, uh, which makes a lot of sense that, you know, that he would end up directing audition um, because there's this element of deep emotionality and also complete absurdity. There's uh, there's tender moments mixed in with insane uh, violence, sometimes sexual violence and gore. Uh, and I just, I saw everything. I even saw at the ending uh, when Kiku and Anemone are, you know, spraying Datura around Tokyo, I saw echoes of the ending of Tetsuo, the Iron Man, right? Yeah, Where totally. The, the famous line, like, our love could destroy this whole fucking world. I was like, oh, Sukumoto had to have, had to have read this book. Everybody probably in the, in the arts in Japan read Coin Locker Babies. Mm, I think so, too. It, there's a lot of pacing in this that feels very Sukumoto-esque too. How it mm, just true jumps from one, not even just one scene to another scene, but like one emotion to another. It's jarring. Like when he comes out of the shower. Oh, that's an example actually of the like child logic. When he's in the shower in Shinjuku in that shitty uh, hotel, he's thinking, how does the water for the shower get up this high? where they're at in the building. And I was like, God, that's such a little kid thing to think. Um, but then he comes out and his adoptive mother is just dead. And he's like, kind of playing, like kind of just messing with her nonchalantly. Like, Hey bitch, you all right. Whatever. Trying to like pry open her eyes and everything before he, it hits him that like he's touching a corpse. I was like, this feels very, both Mike and Sukumoto. <laughs> yeah, like no, the worldview is so. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. You, please. No, it's just like the worldview is like extremely Sukumoto. Like um, that kind of piercing black and white harshness of it that's uh, presented with this um kind of sense of the illogical. I mean, it definitely makes sense as you're proceeding through this, and it's just like these um you know different scenes of absolute unbelievable like a uh, horror like next to like these um fantastic kind of like childish images as well like the the alligator in the mm-hmm. in the house is like definitely one of I those things where like, yeah me too gulliver or when it like snaps to gulliver, yeah. when it snaps to him you definitely get that kind of uh that sense but i feel like the whole like kind of um childish wonder and like the juxtaposition between um all this nastiness definitely contributes to making the whole thing feel like it's a like rushing forward and about to like tip over into total apocalypse, like from the first page onward. 
Oh, I think now it would be a good time for something of a plot synopsis. And I, <laughs> pra- I, I practice this by telling my wife what happens in the book over dinner uh, a couple nights ago. And it took me about five minutes. So I, I, I don't want to do the whole thing. So I'll probably, I'll pass it off at certain points. But the book opens with two orphans, Kiku and Hashi. They're both abandoned in a coin locker by their mothers. Um, they get sent to the same orphanage where they become quick friends. They have bonded, obviously, over their similar predicaments. Uh, Kiku is tough, he's angry, and he's quiet. Uh, he's also athletic, and he acts as sort of a protector to Hashi, who's a bit more nerdy and neurotic. Hashi has a tendency to construct little worlds out of detritus that he finds lying around. So he'll he'll build uh, replica models of uh, what turns out to be the the abandoned town that they end up living next to uh, through their adolescence. So they become friends. They get adopted by Kazuyo and Kuwayama, uh, a nice couple, which by the way, this is such an important thing for writers to realize that if you want to have a truly nasty, visceral book, you have to let off the gas pedal every once in a while and just have characters who are mostly good intentioned and fine because Kuayama and Kazuyo, like they don't sell them into sex slavery. They don't, they don't use <laughs> them in any way, shape, or form. They're just normal people. Kazuyo runs a beauty parlor. Kuayama has this, this great weird job of using this big, uh, you know, Tetsuo iron machine to stamp out, I think lunch boxes, if I'm remembering correctly. That's right. So he's just he's just got this big yeah. lever that he's constantly pulling. Um, so eventually the kids grow up. Uh, Kiku is admired by all of his classmates because he has become a really good pole vaulter. He is uh, sort of out trying to outrun his past. He's constantly following and apparition version of himself that's always running just in front of him. And the way that he <clears throat> the way that he copes with that is by learning how to pole vault. Uh, Hashi, meanwhile, is obsessed with a sound that both boys heard when they were taken to therapy as children, which uh, is the, the the heartbeat of their of their mothers, right? So Hashi becomes obsessed with finding the sound. He's going through all these audio tapes. He's again very neurotic. He's one of these people who, if you interrupt him while he's tuning the television to try to find the sound, he'll flip out, go postal on you, whatever. So they turn seventeen, a largely uneventful life except for almost being eaten by dogs in an abandoned <laughs> town um where they hang out with uh a guy whose name is escaping me right now what gazelle. was his name gazelle. gazelle yes thank you uh gazelle who's a crazy person who's the first one to introduce them to the concept of detura which we'll get into a bit later i have some fun uh arrowid vault drug experiences with detura um, which is a real thing and it does make you crazy. Um, so basically Hashi disappears. He goes to Tokyo to look for his mother 
And then Kiku and Kazuyo set off to find him. Who wants to pick it up from here? I guess I can I can give a give my hand cool. at it just because this one is probably the, the closest to what I've been through. But um, mm-hmm. when they uh, finally uh, go start looking for him, like we mentioned earlier, uh, poor like uh, the poor Kiku is like getting uh, like sexually harassed by people on the street, and it's all of these uh, scenes of them getting like battered by uh, civilians in Shinjuku and uh, Kazuyo, the mother. Uh, falls and uh, hits her head and then ends up dying uh, because of uh, these injuries and being uh, torn apart by the bodies in Tokyo. Um, And by the time that Kiku is able to find his brother, he discovers that he is a uh, drag queen cross-dresser prostitute in the Toxitown district. Um, And... uh, their lives kind of uh, touch again, only for them to move uh, further back apart as um, th- this uh, woman, Anemone or Anemone, I'm not quite sure how they want you to pronounce it, but she um, is a young model who takes uh, Kiku in because she's uh, kind of fascinated by like his uh, silent machismo um, and all the time uh, while this is going on. Hashi is uh, getting groomed by uh, D into becoming a pop star and they uh, are beginning to record music together uh, and he's beginning to like distance himself from his homosexuality. So I guess that's what I'll contribute. (laughs) Yeah, and Anemone Anemone I kind of like anemone because there's so much nautical imagery in this. Right. Yep. And isn't yep. that like a yeah? Mm-hmm. And see, so yeah, that that's that's a that's a cool name to have. There's a lot of recurring themes throughout this um, entire narrative that kind of help stream it along, having the same repeated uh, thematic imagery pop up. She takes care of this uh, crocodile that was supposed to be like a pygmy type miniature crocodile that outgrew its uh, its aquarium one day and proceeded to bite the fingers off of one of her parents and uh, trap her other parent in the, in the bathroom, break his legs with his tail and everything. And she turns their apartment into this like a uh, swamp basically they call it the kingdom of the kingdom of the croc or something Mm -hmm. and (laughs) um (laughs) they uh hashi falls in love with uh his manager neva and they get married kiku is uh pole vaulting um and all all the time searching for this substance called Datura that he's been on the hunt for since a child in order to take his revenge upon the city of Tokyo to destroy all of Tokyo. Uh, along the way, he finds Hashi's real mother. Uh, let's well, see. Okay, well, he- this, I got, I got, 
You want me to jump in? On this part several times. No, no, no. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. I'll jump in. So there's a few things first uh, that I wanted to add. First of all, I don't typically imagine actors when I'm reading books, but the character of D, who is this kind of slimy music manager who's always getting uh, massages from an enormous black Amazon woman. Uh, I pictured him as Renji Ishibashi, who's a common guy in uh, audition, like in uh, Mike films. He's in audition. He's the guy in the wheelchair. He's in Dead or Alive. He's the guy who drowns the hooker yeah, in a yeah. pool of shit. Um, That's great. Yeah. yeah. Be- well, because he's described at one point as having big, uh, supple lips. <laughs> and I just and Renji Shibashi always has, you know, he's often cast as a pervert in Mike movies because he just has, sorry to say, a kind of pervy face. Like he looks like he'd be beating off on a subway or something like that. But he also looks like he could be uh, a kind of businessman who's also beating off on the subway, right? Um, so basically, uh, yeah, we get to. Neva, it's important to note that she is an older woman. So Hashi at one point decides that he's not gay anymore, that he actually likes women. And he finds Neva who's had breast cancer and has had both breasts removed. So he can kind of cope because she doesn't have titties flopping around. So he's kind of like, hey, it's kind of like a dude with a pussy. Um, uh, (laughs) But uh, D has this plan. He has this idea that's going to make Hashi's record sales pop because the issue with Hashi is that his voice is very peculiar it's it's described uh in terms of you know rustling leaves uh but it has this hypnotic ability to make people go deep within themselves to their to their darkest memories and kind of relive their past so he's a hard sell if you listen to him two or three times, you kind of get it, but he's not an instantly saleable kind of pop sensation. Um, so D has this idea that he's going to introduce Hashi to his mother on live TV. So he finds the woman. Uh, there's a great sequence of this, <laughs> this guy named Handy who is a private detective who's kind of looking for these women. And you get this play-by-play of all these women who left their children in coin lockers and how their lives have gone. I found that to be an extremely effective uh, segment of the book of just Mm. this kind of cold, banal evil. Um, But Hashi finds out because Neva tells him, And when he finds out, he seeks out an author of a book on women who left their babies in coin lockers. And he stands outside in the snow and eventually she lets him in. And it turns out that Hashi's mother has been dead for a long time. So the woman who Dee found is actually Kiku's mother. Well, Kiku catches wind that Dee has this plan to introduce Hashi to his mother thinking that he's going to be saving his friend from public humiliation and whatever he he shows up to the set with like a dozen uh pistols and shotguns that he's gotten off of a filipino toxitown denizen who's toothless named uh tatsuo um tatsuo de la cruz 
<laughs> and and he and he uh so he shows movie. up and and this and then it like the the book suddenly turns into this crazy slapstick action movie where he's like kind of like blowing people away like their legs right he's just he's firing wildly he finally gets to the set and hashi in a sequence that i found very chilling has uh kind of shifted and it's almost like he since he knows that this is kiku's mother He's acting very friendly and said, look, we found your mom, knowing full well up to that point how much that would have wrecked him. But now he's able to drop the bomb on Kiku. Long story short, the, the mom tries to calm Kiku down and he blows her head off with a shotgun. So Kiku kills his own mother, goes to jail for five years, and I will stop there again. Who wants um, to pick? Oh, God. So I think that this is a, a kind of a, an interesting section of the book because the the shift in how the narrative, like the, the whole book kind of uh, jumps and lurches between these different kinds of uh, narrative paces. But this is like by far the biggest like left turn. Um, and we spend, I think, like maybe like 200 pages or so with mm-hmm. uh, Kiku as he is in prison um, and he gets to train to be a part of like the seafarers organization as a part of his like very uh, fair and uh, kind of rational prison sentence. Meanwhile, uh, Hashi is going on tour uh, throughout Japan and um, because of the murder, his sales are through the roof and he's becoming kind of like this David Bowie cult Mm -hmm. leader as he uh, whips up the crowds and, uh, argues with his band and when he's back performing in Kyushu they have to um they're having all these like conflicts with how like Hashi is beginning to lose uh contact with his own identity and is becoming um sort of possessed and haunted by this uh separate narrative in his head so when he returns home to this uh island in in rural Kyushu outside of Saisabol uh he it kind of comes to the conclusion that he's swallowed some sort of fly that's like buzzing mm-hmm. around in him and t- telling him what to do with a human so, face. That's right. With a human face. So he believes that he's being piloted by this little fly. Um, all the while, Anemone is like still uh, chasing after, after Hush, after Kiku. And she's like visiting him in prison and working at a pastry shop so that uh, one day she can kind of like help Hush a plan to liberate him from uh, prison. And when uh, I guess Hashi finally goes to meet Kiku and in prison and uh, look for affirmation about who he is and what, you know, what he's supposed to do. Um, they're kind of like left at, at a stale impasse where you realize that they're never going to be able to uh, reconcile their worldviews with each other. And they're kind of like broken off forever at that point. Heartbreaking, completely Very. heartbreaking scene when Kiku hits Hashi through the, through the mesh. I was just like, no, but you love each other. Uh, <laughs> I thought the same thing. Also worth noting in terms of heartbreaking scenes, uh, Gulliver dies. Uh, oh God. And, 
Yeah, just Anemone so violent. It's so so cartoonishly violent the way that Gulliver dies. <laughs> but there's a there's a so basically Anemone stops at a truck stop. Uh, she's kind of on her way to visit Kiku, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. and she has Gulliver in the back, and she's converted the the back of her car into a little swamp type area. And she stops at a truck stop and encounters two. Uh, it feels wrong to say two very Miike characters because chronologically, temporally, that's incorrect. But they they feel like Miike characters. Uh, this kind, this kind, these two short guys in a bathroom uh, who kind of beat each other up to impress her. And when she's not impressed, they humiliate her, and she leaves. She's on the highway and she looks behind her and Steven Spielberg, you know, dual style. Dual, yeah. Yeah. They're in a, they're in a truck and they, they run her off the road and Gulliver gets thrown from the thing. And there is an absolutely heartbreaking passage uh, that describes Gulliver attempting to uh, sort of head for some bushes, right. To just like to try to disappear. Uh, but he gets run over, split in half, and and his two halves go flying. So yeah, he goes flying R- up into the sky. All right, R.I.P. Gulliver. People, people die in this book. People get, uh, you know, sexually violated and you know, physically assaulted. But really, at the end of the day, the true tragic figure of Coin Locker Babies is Gulliver. So true. <laughs> There's a lot of compassion for animals in this book, which you don't usually find in books of this ilk. Like this, this demented, usually anytime an animal comes across the page, you're going, oh God, what's going to happen? But there's a lot of sentimentality uh, that that's put on the animals in this book, like dogs, Hashi with dogs. Because he's uh, he's rescued from his coin locker because a dog, you know, sniffs him out and is like, "There's something weird in here," um, barking, and then people come and find him. And so he's always got this thing about dogs, and they want to like steal a dog from the the abandoned mine town on the island when they first get adopted. And then near the end, he also has this strange encounter with a stranger's dog where he's going nuts and this like uh, calling to it, you know, it's, it's me, it's me. I can't believe you found me. And this dude loses control of his dog who runs up to Hashi. And it's just a lot of like the sweet, tender and heartbreaking moments that, are necessary kind of like how you said with the parents of just being normal to like kind of even things out to where things actually hit a lot harder whenever it goes crazy or it gets really bleak or fucked up yeah totally yeah yeah so uh when we're in the home stretch of the novel it's worth repeating as zach said that the novel takes this kind of inexplicable turn from a fast-paced cartoon uh you know dirty violent grimy book to kind of a seafaring nautical adventure uh, (laughs) full full of full of you know descriptions of longitude and latitude and wind speed uh because 
you know, Kiku uh, has made a group of friends whose names I cannot remember. Uh, I know Yamane. Yamane is a guy who has a reconstructed skull because he's this big fucker who will occasionally lose his cool and go berserk. Uh, and then two other guys who are kind of, you know, they're placeholders. There's nothing uh, super unique about them. Hayashi and Nakakura. Thank you. Yeah, those two. So, you know, they're on this boat and um, Kiku's planning an escape. He has Anemone set to meet him at a certain time. And then a storm comes in. There are some great scenes of them, you know, down in the hold with like, you know, a standing inch or two of puke on the floor as they're you mm-hmm. know, trying to not die in this storm. And they figure out that there is a wrecked ship of Filipino pirates nearby that they go and save. Um, his escape attempt is botched because one of his homies loses his cool and also tries to escape. Um, or maybe that happens earlier. It doesn't matter. It's not important. Um, <laughs> but basically what ends up happening is that they do get out. These scenes are interspersed with uh, Hashi gradually kind of losing his mind, not kind of losing his mind, legit going psycho mode. Um, they escape. Uh, Yamane gets killed in the escape attempt because there's a new, again, the thing, the repeating theme in this uh, book uh, with news crews being able to induce violent rage in people, uh, their inability to stop questioning Yamane mm-hmm. about their rescue of these Filipino pirates when, when he's having one of his episodes makes him go sicko mode and start just wrecking shop. And it's, you know, insanely gory. Five people die, but they get out and Anemone picks them up and then they begin their hunt for Datura because Datura, as Kelby mentioned, is going to be this thing that they release on Tokyo that turns people into rage zombies. Uh, I'll just take it home really quick because I mean, it's a 500 page book people. I mean, it's, there's a lot of shit yeah. on this, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm kidding. A lot of shit. Happens. So basically Hashi starts going nuts. Neva gets pregnant. Uh, he starts to feel like he has to kill the baby that's inside of her. Uh, his story plays out with him eventually completely losing it, stabbing Neva in the, in her pregnant belly in the shower, which may or may not be real. I think it's not real. It might all be in his head. Uh, and ending up in a mental institution, Kiku and crew go on a Thunderball-esque nautical underwater adventure to find some sunken uh, Datura in the sea uh, that ends up, I no shit, it might actually be my favorite part of the book, which is this kind of long, ponderous underwater adventure (laughs) that they go on together. (laughs) Uh, that ends with uh, one guy accidentally taking his respirator off and inhaling some Datora, going nuts and trying to kill everybody. Uh, Kiku has to spear gun him after he stabs the other guy to death. But they get the Datora. Uh, Anemone and him are the two survivors. They go to Tokyo with the, the cylinders of it. I'm thinking of the... You guys ever seen The Rock? Remember that movie with Sean no. Connery and Nicolas Cage? Okay, so this was really big. I think I might be a, a bit a bit older, but when I was like 11 or 12, there was this uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, Michael Bay action movie called The Rock with Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery, where they have to break into Alcatraz, where these 
uh, you know, uh, mistreated veterans have taken people hostage and they're going to release this, this neurotoxin on the city of San Francisco. Um, and there are these tubes with these green balls in them. So that's, that's what I was picturing in this, in this thing. Anyway, Kiku releases the toxin. That's where the Tetsuo, our love will destroy the whole fucking world comes in. Wrap up his story. The book ends with Hashi in the mental ward and they bring in a prisoner who is, you know, going full on Colossus uh, crazy mode. They're, mm-hmm. they're trying to put a kind of uh, sedative in him and the needle bends, which reminds me of Frank and in the miso soup and kind of like being made out of metal. Um, Hashi escapes. He's walking through this, you know, walking dead zombie apocalypse uh, blasted Tokyo. And he finds a woman uh who is pregnant and he uh, shoves his fist down her throat rips open her chest pulls out her heart and then starts trying to put the heart back in so that the baby can stay alive and the book ends with him asking her uh how do you like my new song so plot synopsis over that took so long but now we've got that out of the way (laughs) I mean, this book is like, so, I mean, it is, it's like 500 pages of things constantly happening. Um, So it's like, it's impossible just to like give a tidy little summary that like encapsulates the whole scope of it. But um, I I mean, there's just no way to describe like exactly what the effect of all of these um, really like bizarro, like psychedelic late seventies images, like colliding with each other until it like all leads to apocalypse. But I don't know. I just found the everything to be, I don't want to say believable because that's like a stupid like creative writing workshop um, word, but it's like, it feels real and there's no question about anything that's happening. It, it's so like organic and surreal at once. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I think of um, there's so many like little ways that it grounds you into its, its world. Like with a, with Hashi doing weird shit as a kid, like when he goes fucking postal and it's just going wild on everybody. And he, he's watching TV. He's not going to school. He's just staring at the TV. He explains to Kiku, I'm not crazy. I'm searching for a sound. And boom, I was there. I was like, okay, cool. Like, I get it now. Like, but like the, the sh- just bizarre but you're like along for it the whole time and it just makes sense in this kind of like hazy dream way too uh which i thought some of it i was dreaming i reread the first 100 pages or the last 100 pages today because i was up all night a couple of nights this week trying to finish it and um some of it i was like did i fall asleep and just make all that shit up like did that really happen and it all did every time i went back and was like holy fuck yeah that really happened um but it's it's like you said it just feels real the whole time which isn't like i mean yeah gay workshop thing who cares like but real in the sense of uh how it hits too. Yeah. 
That's exactly what I was thinking. I love the imagery on the beach whenever they bury uh, Nakakura and Hayashi. Whenever you know, after the whole Thunderball run for the Datura goes goes awry, um, it's just such a beautiful scene. You've got Anemone with her red umbrella, and after this burial, this little ritual ceremony, and they've got their rage zombie drug that they're going to unleash on the city. Kiku is like, I'm going to pole vault over you. And it is just another one of those things. It's like, I mean, that's weird, but it totally makes sense too. Yeah. The pole vaulting is like such a bizarrely selected image, but um, you know, like we've been saying, like it all feels so intentional. Um, I was like trying to reflect on like what, I like took away from this whole like 500 page affair and like what exactly was being communicated to me. And I feel like I'm still, you know, mulling it over, even though it's like all I've been thinking about this week, really. But it's like um, this kind of terrorizing vision of the world where everything is um, firing so rapidly on all axes at once that it becomes this uh, like gloopy anti-real like soup of uh pastiche and fantasy or something like that yeah go ahead kelby you've been seeing these memes lately like the meme lately is like uh my politics or whatever this is i um i just had the light bulb moment that like that's me with coin locker babies because (laughs) i think it's i think it's saying saying a lot sociopolitically without really saying that like it's a very spiritual uh dreamlike emotional book and those are the things that like hitting on emotion and being this weird surreal spiritual work of art are like the book's concern it's not it doesn't feel like it's concerned as much with all the like logistical socio-political things that it is commenting really heavily on when you think about it um especially parental neglect and like uh the whole trend of leaving babies in coin lockers it being such a specific thing to japan which i didn't know uh, until researching a little bit while reading that that was even a real thing. Yeah, I think one of the big messages of this book is that <clears throat> is that Kiko and Hashi they'd never actually leave the coin locker. So this is this is touched on a lot. And there's this uh, there's this great passage. It's on four hundred eight. Um, And it goes a little something like this. So Hashi was at it again, he thought, on his way back down the hall, as fucked up as ever. It made him want to spit with rage. The same old story, armies of assholes, total strangers, telling them lies. Nothing had changed, not one thing. Not since he'd let out that first scream in the coin locker. The locker was bigger, maybe. The new one had a pool and gardens with a band, people wandering about half naked. And you could keep pets. 
Yes, this one had all kinds of shit, museums, movie theaters, and mental hospitals, but it was still a huge coin locker. And no matter how many layers of camouflage you had to dig through, if you felt like digging, in the end, you still ran up against a wall. And if you managed to scramble up the wall, there they were with those sneering faces, ready to kick you back down, knock you down and knock you out. And when you wake up, it's back to jail, back to the bug house. It's all cleverly hidden behind potted palms and sparkling pools, behind cuddly puppies and tropical fish, movie screens and exhibitions and layers of smooth lady skin. But behind it all, there's always the wall, the guards prowling around, the high watchtower. Whenever the gray fog lifts for a second, there they are, the wall, the tower. They scare you stiff, they make you mad, but there's less than nothing you can do about them. And when you can't stand it anymore, and the fear and rage get you moving, get you started towards doing something, there they are again, waiting for you. The prison, the nut house, the lead box for your bones. There's only one solution, one way out, and that's to smash everything around you to smithereens, to start over from the beginning, to lay everything to waste. Which, by the way, bars. <laughs> bars. Bars for days. Bars. But I, I like that's exactly what I, I'm thinking of like with this book is like it has this enormous sense of uh, like spinning, rotating humanity and this like really grisly impression of it. And I feel like that's something that Murakami does in all of his books and in different ways. And like, like thinking about almost transparent blue with that like 40 page like biracial like death orgy um, or like the slaughter scene in, in the miso soup like those both also kind of point to this urban like collection of a whole country that is um so unwieldy like modernity has just got to this point where everything is like thrashing in this uh, endless entropy in, in different directions and I just feel like um Murakami like can really like situate you inside that kind of horrific idea so convincingly that like of course like there's like alligators like getting ripped apart by trucks and like you know cultish pop singers and uh, you know seafaring adventure like uh just because of how uncontrollable everything is and uh how mechanical and disgusting and like sewer grady everything has become like it's just uh this terrible collection of images like all pushing out in different directions the japanese uh this it feels uniquely uh japanese to me as a person who has never been to japan um you know what's interesting as kind of a side note i have spent a lot of time in korea okay. uh, uh i've spent a lot of time in seoul and by a lot of time i mean about two months um and when i was there I had this thought that like, oh, Korea is going through America's 80s right now because everything is like consumer. And it's like my wife and I basically would just we would hang out in Itaewon, which is the kind of foreigner district of Korea. And we would hang out. There were two hills. One was called Hooker Hill and the other was called Homo Hill. And they're pretty self-explanatory what's going on on those two hills. But, you know the kind of decadence and people partying and, you know, uh, we made friends with this bar tender at a gay bar who had all these silicone muscles. It all felt like this like crazy American excess. And I wonder 
in terms of Japan, uh, you know, they had that big bubble burst and everything like that. It, it almost feels like Japan is, is in the future from America, right? Like the, the disaffected feeling and uh, the kind of pointlessness of it all. So it felt to me a little bit culturally like Korea was gearing up for that. And it's like, oh God, have fun while it lasts. And then you have America and then you have Japan. No, I think that's exactly right. Well, I've always viewed like um, Korea as like the Canada of Asia. Like it's like Japan's like colonized, (laughs) like sad little brother. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. <laughs> and like they were basically like a mud country before they were colonized. I mean, you can make politically whatever you like of that. But I mean, it was just like, you know, like China grass until like they got colonized. So they have like a very like limited art culture that's only um, getting on the ground now. And I like, don't think necessarily in a good direction. Um, and like if you look at like Japanese art, like um, Japanese film has been pretty bad since like the digital camera was introduced and like mm-hmm. I think Mike is still doing like some good stuff like I liked First Love actually quite a bit and um, yeah, Sono Shion is a, a genius of course yep. but um, like basically like since uh, the digital world began to appear like that really like fresh apocalyptic decadence of like bubble Japan uh, and then like the really immediately tragic fallout it, like I think currently Japan is like uh, sort of suspended in uh, this post-apocalypse where mm-hmm. uh, everything, especially in the countryside, is just an echo of the 90s because they stopped developing infrastructure. So everything right. looks like 1988. But Tokyo, of course, keeps pushing forward. So it's um, this like city that's constantly at war with like the swamp it's built on top of. Uh, and it's like this big humid city that's full of like trashy pet bottles and uh, the people there are just, um, yeah, it definitely is like this kind of futuristic, like graduated um, sort of longing futurescape because I, I definitely, yeah. I don't, I mean, I haven't even been to America in four years now, so I don't even know what things are like, but I know when I was leaving, it definitely felt like it was moving in that direction and Japan seems to just already be there. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, no, America's tight. America's great. I have no notes on America. It's a <laughs> fucking amazing country. So what you're saying, though, is it kind of sounds like uh, Japan is Neo-Tokyo right yeah. now. I mean, the um, Olympics just happened. Like, you know? Yeah, right, right. Akira came true, basically. Uh, we, just, we just did an episode on the world of Kanako. Have you seen this film? I have. I love Nakashima. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that might be, and I think Kelby will echo this sentiment. Uh, it became, uh, in the episode we talked about it, so I, I like won't recap the whole thing, but basically the first time I watched it, it was one of the hundred times that I smoked pot. And so I was just like terrified and confused. Um, and then I watched it sober again, and I think it might be one of the best movies I've ever seen, right? Because it has an amorality uh, to it that is, been unmatched by by anything that I've seen. Mm-hmm. So I basically in my tweet about it, I talked about how, you know, there are movies like a Serbian film, which are kind of cartoonish and gross and nihilistic uh, and fun, right? Um, and then there's World of Kanako, which is just like completely unaffected by any of the rape or violence that's happening. And I don't think I'd ever quite experienced that. And I, I wonder if that that numbness uh, exemplified in that film 
doesn't speak to what you're talking about, right? No, I think like it totally does. Because it, it mixes the kind of like, you know, people getting stabbed in the fucking hand and blood spurting and uh, Akikazu, uh, you know, raping that that woman, the cop's wife or whatever. And it's all like mixed in with this music video, kawaii, baby doll, peace sign bullshit, right? And it's just mm-hmm. like, oh, makes me feel, makes me feel sad. <laughs> yeah, it makes me feel sad too um and yeah i love nakashima because he definitely has like that sense of uh like the decaying uh, world that's like covered up with a nasty plastic sheen and he just did a, a movie three years ago that was like pretty loathed by everyone and i'm like the only one i know who likes it um but it's called a it comes it comes and, yeah. Uh, yeah and it has like this great thread about a like a well-to-do like Ike man the handsome dad who like over narrates his uh child's life on a blog <laughs> and it's like mm. I, th- I thought that was like really depressing and upsetting and um I think World of Conoco's original Japanese title is thirst just thirst and I mean there is like that 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 hunger that continues to prevail in the human spirit to you know touch the abject and the disgusting sexual world and you know drugs and fucking and rape and <clears throat> all of that and what i mean is uh so you know interesting about japan is that you know that kind of thirst is uh you know publicly performed in a commercialized ritual like with snack bars and uh you know prostitution and uh this really regimented difference between uh life at work and you know life when you're uh, cheating on your wife or whatever but I honestly think it's a beautiful way of living and um I think like when it comes to coin locker babies Murakami also has like that same understanding and even though like the novel ends with like Datura raining down on heaven and uh you know reducing people to their primordial urges I still think that Murakami understands that there is like an ecstasy there it's not quite nihilistic Oh yeah, totally. It feels hopeful, like in a way. It uh, mm, mm-hmm. if you look at it in a literal sense, then it could be like that they're accelerationists and they're like, we need to speed up this destruction so that we can move on to the next era, so that we can rebuild. Um, but metaphorically and you know just emotionally from the characters that you know are the vehicle for this whole climax it it just feels more it has the vibe of uh of that tetsuo ending of the mm-hmm. you know our love will destroy the whole fucking world it, it's not uh i hate the world fuck it let's watch it burn it's our love is going to mm-hmm. tear open this facade like it's gonna shatter all the bullshit um no, it felt really optimistic to me. <laughs> like whenever too, everything yeah. just goes to shit and they they succeed with getting the Datura and drive off with it. And and then you find out through Hashi wandering out the mental hospital that they succeeded and the whole, you know, all of Tokyo is going nuts. I was like, oh, yes, a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of uniquely japanese phenomena the the coin locker babies itself is a real thing uh i found this article from the journal child abuse and neglect which sounds like a 
page turner. Yeah. So, <laughs> Uh, this is from 1995. Uh, it's called Child Abuse and Neglect in Japan, Coin-Operated Locker Babies. Uh, and the abstract, I won't read the whole thing, obviously, because it's seven pages, but it says social and economic variables in Japan account for differences in the frequency and type of child abuse cases. The murder of infants as a form of population control became a serious social problem in Japan by 1975 when the term coin-operated locker baby was introduced. Uh I'll stop there. There were a bunch in the 70s. Between 1980 and 1990, there were 191 babies left in lockers. I think all of them died. I don't think any of them made it out. Um, But I'm I'm interested in this concept of culturally driven phenomena like the coin locker baby, specifically in light of the mass shootings that happened in the U.S., which seem uh, completely alien barbaric and strange to to outsiders and i mean probably to most americans as well but you know the u.s isn't the only country that has gun ownership um and i don't want to do that whole thing where i i shy away from the how easy it is to get a gun in america because it is fucking easy like Mm -hmm. i can i have a gun kelby has many guns Uh, i could go buy a gun tomorrow and it's like buying anything else really i could just go yeah. in and say hey i want an ar-15 and they're like okay bet uh you want a payment plan or <laughs> i was <laughs> i was shooting an ar-15 a few months ago in the country because my stepdad has one and he just wanted to play with it uh and i, I posted that picture online and some fucking uh, douchebag from scotland or something was like you americans you disgust me like have you already forgotten the mass shootings which you know i mean being in america I guess we just don't kind of think about it that way. It's just like, no, I mean, we all just have guns. It's just a thing. Anyway, I'm rambling, but long story short, I'm not uh, either excusing or, you know, uh, you know, encouraging how easy it is for severely mentally ill people to get guns. That's definitely part of the problem, but it's also with some exceptions, a uniquely American phenomena. So it's, it's like, it's interesting how these countries, like, what is it about Japan, which has since 1948 has had, uh, it's literally called the eugenics law. Uh, it was like the leader in the world on abortion rights. And yet it still has uh, this phenomena of women leaving ba- live babies in coin lockers. I mean, it's, it is an interesting question. And like, uh, when it comes to like mass violence, like, Tokyo is kind of a frightening place to be because like the trains are so packed and there's uh, so many people that like on my subway line, um, I was like out with friends, but on my subway line that I take, there was like a, a man who like lit off like uh, arson and like did a, a mass like slashing like just a few months ago. Like uh, people will always find a way to like start exhuming these horrifying things they have locked inside of them uh from their ancestors uh, repeating endlessly into their like genetic code like we're all just um these ancient creatures of you know violence and uh horror and no matter how many polite little laws or social expectations are put on top of you there's always going to be people you know like it's like a, a woman in a cave like giving birth on a leaf and then rejecting the baby because it's like uh disgusting to the mother somehow you can like feel like that echoing as uh, these japanese women uh, just 
wrap the baby up and put it in the locker. It's aggressive, right? Like it's a, it's a statement. It's an actual act of, uh, of loathing and hatred towards the kid. Right. That, I mean, it's kind of better if you just vacuum it out, honestly. Yes, seriously. Um, I mean, look at what happened <laughs> with these two. Um, I was thinking like also a lot about like Glamorama by uh, Brad Easton Ellis reading this because. Oh um, yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that they both have a sense for like fabulous celebrity as violence. Like they both mm. understand that there's inherently something kind of a uh, glamorous and uh, fascinating about, you know, mass acts of terror. And um I think like this and, and Glamorama are like some of the only, you know, great pieces of art about, you know, mass violence that make uh, make anything of a futurist push forward from what they're writing. Yeah. Uh, Glamorama is Ellis's fa- favorite book, book of his own. Um, <clears throat> I'm much less interesting, but my favorite is much more basic bitch. I love American Psycho, but um yeah, I think that your point is really spot on. It's also got Fight Club ideas to it, right? It like, totally uh, does, yeah. Um, the, you know, Fight Club, uh, Polonik was on a tear for a while there with Fight Club Survivor, Invi- even Invisible Mon- Invisible Monsters deals much more with, uh, you know, celebrity and looks and things like that. Um, but yeah, there is this inescapable question that people don't want to reckon with when it comes to things like the coin locker baby phenomena or uh, or mass shootings in the U.S., which is um, what makes people decide to, like, what have we done? We, nobody gets to pass this question on to the next person, but what have we been doing for the past 50 years? You know, pretty much, you know, since 1945, the end of World War II, when we signed the Bretton Woods Accord and we decided that the U.S. was going to be the cops of the world and we were going to be the most prosperous nation and, you know, create this uh, empty materialist hell that we all currently live in, what role does that play in somebody uh, who is extremely online and cares about things like Instagram and Twitter, what role does that play in them using these readily available weapons of mass casualty to do what they do, right? Mm -hmm. If nobody wanted to commit mass shootings, then there'd be no problem. We would just have the freest gun laws in the world and it would all be tight, but there's something, there's something else going on, right? (laughs) The same way that Japan had the freest abortion laws in 1975 whenever this kind of stuff was going on it's it's not an adequate answer for it it's the most obvious but occam's razor is bullshit i think it's Mm. things things are not simple uh it's it's very complex and there is this kind of uh and this book obviously doesn't shy away from it neither does glamorama there is this sexy beautiful uh, interesting appetite for destruction, a Nietzschean death drive or a Freudian death drive, sorry, to, uh, to enact these kind of acts of mass terror. Totally. It's a kind of like staging, like, um, like staging the human life cycle in uh, this exaggerated, like pop culturally channeled way, because I mean, the, the image of the coin locker and these two young boys uh, coping with the absence of the mother 
uh, I mean, it just manifests like throughout the book. And I feel like it's a, a beautiful diorama of uh, the state of the human soul. I mean, I can't, when I was reading this, I was shocked it was published in 1980 because it feels yeah, so too. contemporary, you know, mm-hmm. I was just uh, blown away that this was so like prescient 42 years ago. Um, and uh, I mean, there's so many different ways to cope with, uh, you know, being a, a human in the modern condition, but I found this uh, avenue to be uh, very beautiful. And I love that uh, one of the ways that Hashi tries to like, uh, you know, reorient his relationship with the absent mother is like by rejecting all of his sexual drive towards uh, the feminine and then uh, reenacting it himself and uh, being a, a, a gay cross-dressing hooker i i loved that it makes so much sense to embody it yeah absolutely does that resonate or something (laughs) i mean i just i don't have it like a i don't do drag for because of a perverse like at a poor relationship with my mom i like mostly just like Mm -hmm. do it because i think it's a like a unique homosexual art form uh and because i love male attention like that's really about it but (laughs) i like the idea yeah i love that that's that's great when you try to psychoanalyze things and they're like, I, bro, I just think it's cool. And I like it when dudes are looking at me. <laughs> so I mean, it's great. Cool. And Japanese guys love it. And Japanese men are the hottest men in the planet. So, I mean, I really am just, uh, this is my <laughs> coin locker babies, like apocalypse is just like, uh, I'm going to like create like some new STD. It's like monkeypox three or something that <laughs> circulates in the chaser community of Tokyo. <laughs> this, is a, this is a real, this is a real peanut butter and chocolate situation we have going on here. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in the, in the same way that like uh, you said that like resonates, just, just makes sense. The whole destruction shit like also really makes sense to me like just on a spiritual level like you you just know like we skirt around the real issue all the time because it's one that's much harder to articulate and i think it's also much uglier to face whenever we like are able if we if we would be able to articulate it these you know culturally specific violent phenomena Mm -hmm. um have historical spiritual echoes that can just be felt like i remember being in school i was in uh junior high in the like columbine years and you would just remark like on a bad day or if you push somebody because of course you know we bully the fuck out of everybody out of each other it was like you know uh our love language was bullying. Yeah. Um, that's how men show love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's great. I think it's, it should be encouraged and not protested against, but, yeah. uh, you know, you, you rub one of your homies the wrong way and, you know, he gets a little girly about it and then his feelings and whatever. And you're like, Oh, it's okay. Don't go committing a don't go shoot up the school, bro. Like he brings he brings a fucking extendo, and it's over. Um, I like this idea of the the natural human impulse towards violence. I, I think about in Australia, the Aboriginal people who live there, who are the the longest contiguous uh, bloodline of people on the planet, 
like their bloodline stretches back 50,000 years. So they are pure humans in the, the most uh, eugenicist uh, Nazi sense that you can think of. And in Australia, they have a long and storied tradition of slash and burn uh, farming techniques where they will uh, sort of surgically burn parts of the Australian outback in order to uh, mitigate the forest fires that would occur if they, if they didn't burn it down themselves. And when the white people moved into Australia, they're like, oh, that's, uh, we're not going to do that. That's not a good practice, which they, you know, I mean, this is the story of colonialism, right? Is like people moving into other cultures that they don't understand. And instead of being like, that's cool and weird. And I kind of fuck with it. And I want to know more about it. They're just like, no, we're going to do things the way we do in soggy ass London. Um, (laughs) Anyway, surprising no one. uh, Australia has really bad brush fires every fucking year, you know? And what we're saying here, that's kind of interesting and would probably be, uh, I don't know, perceived as kind of heartless or cold or whatever, but like these, these mass shootings, uh, particularly with children might be a result of us having metaphorically stamped out slash and burn, uh, techniques with things like, you know, uh, advanced natal care, being able to keep babies alive as long as they do. You know, the focus on killing children specifically, I think is uh, just a dark, but maybe in some kind of part of our brain, supposedly necessary thing. I want listeners, by the way, to hear what I'm saying very carefully, not saying it's good, right? It's not good when, uh, uh, you know, a lioness eats her cubs or when, uh, you know, a tiger shark, when the, the babies in the tiger shark's womb eat each other, which is mentioned in coin locker babies, that uh, sh- shark fetuses will vie for dominance until only one shark comes out. Uh, the killing of children is, is obviously horrific, whatever form it takes, whether it's the coin locker or the mass shooting or dun, 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 abortion right it's all horrific um but at the same time could that not be a subconscious response to how many fucking babies we're having lately right i mean it's like like, we like like aren't we have no evidence we're alive like we have no proof because um like everything is so easy you don't have to struggle for i mean you only have to struggle in an emotional sense which is kind of like a german idea or something but it doesn't like really lend weight to your corporeal existence like you go to work you go home like you watch netflix like you order uber like you don't have to like kill anything in order to eat like you don't have to like protect your um your children really like everything is uh so convenient and there's no threat of death ever that uh life becomes kind of abstract and uh, expected. So I feel like these people who do acts of mass violence, um, you know, not to sympathize with them or, or anything, but like they're trying to remind themselves that, you know, they're alive. They're trying to prove that they exist somehow because uh, the violent nature of our being is so 
abstracted and, and vanished in the contemporary sense. I don't really have like a solution for that either. Um, except, you know, maybe the Datura is a good idea. I don't know. Yeah, Datura is a good idea. Or just, you know, the general progression of things. We've all been living in decline since the day that we were born. Decline started happening in 1972 with peak oil. Uh, after that, oil became allegedly more scarce and more expensive and everything started getting worse. I feel like Jack does a good job on the perfume nationalist of, uh, you know, sort of chronicling the descent into the kind of vapidity that we live in these days. It's one of the, it's one of the best uh, through lines of that show, mm-hmm. I think. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, we will all go back to not mad. It's not going to be Mad Max. It's not going to be anything quite like that. Uh, in fact, it'll probably get worse because the solution that the powers that be mostly have is to shove us even, you know, our obese, uh, awful bodies into ever smaller pods until we're just kind of bursting and wanting to get out. But like, uh, yeah, that, yeah, the violence doesn't go away right? You, you, you nailed it. I mean, babies used to, uh, the only reason why people would have nine kids is because fucking seven of them would die in childbirth, right? We had this miracle where all of a sudden now, now all nine of them can live. Uh, and what I'm saying is what, what if, what if that, that child death wasn't in some way necessary or important right for for the human experience it's a tough idea it's a tough idea we also when we lost the proof of life by having to actually confront death um you know mental health is an issue because because we don't know what to do with that violence anymore and Mm -hmm especially in America, a major issue and why kids, I think kids are shooting up schools because art sucks here. And there's no like, um, there's no importance placed in like allowing uh, not just a societal culture, like the, the culture of PSA meetings and the culture of football and the culture of, you know, church and things that are fine that are good or that can be good but like um you know not not really placing any kind of importance on art and shrugging it all off as meaningless entertainment and then and then obviously like through that treatment allowing it to evolve into nothing but meaningless entertainment you have this myopic disaffected like nothingness that exists like you you don't have a place to compartmentalize that violence you know you should we should be making serbian films left and right Mm -hmm. you know that's right compartmentalize that violence and be able to have nine kids and not have any of them go shoot up a school (laughs) Right. That's why people, that's, yeah, that's, (laughs) no, that, that's why, sorry, that, that's why people, uh, who like, who complain about violence in, in movies or books should be, uh, lined up against the wall. They're first against the wall, right? Because art is 100% a cage 
that we put these impulses into. Art is the solution to our, you know, modern uh, school shooter malaise, right? And I'm not talking like you, you would think like, well, these kids have screens in front of them from the day that they're born. See, that's the problem, right? Is that the screens are designed to be slot machines that just entertain them endlessly and they can never have a down moment. What that hap- what what ends up happening to people is that you know they just they gotta they gotta experience some kind of difficulty and um, that is why people who champion difficult art like uh, oh I don't know uh, horse woman dog that's that's the title <laughs> of it right yeah that's uh, it that's why it's important to watch watch horse woman dog right because you should sit for an hour and a half or however long that piece of filth goes on and you should uh ingest it right it should be difficult it shouldn't be fun it should make you feel weird things uh are are you liking any of this i don't know maybe explore it a little bit difficulty right art is a cage for our worst impulses where we can play which is the ultimate human impulse it's what the entire universe is based on it's based on play and uh without it when we get these kind of anodyne uh gray everything tastes like ash crowd pleaser marvel whatever's uh people are watching it right and they might in their head be thinking i'm having so much fun watching captain america do something cool with his shield or thor he's got the hammer that's cool deep down you're like i want to rape an old woman and stab a baby in the throat you know and those yeah. impulses have to go somewhere no, absolutely. I, I mean, art used to be a communal experience. Like it used to be like something that you suffer through together. And I mean, Jack talks about this all the time, but especially like in the eighties, like in the late seventies, like people were going and seeing like truly horrific stuff on, on a mass scale. And I think people were able to process their ancestral, you know, desires much more clearly. And I was just uh, thinking about this recently as well but um lately i'm becoming like very much of like a homosexual supremacist because like i do believe <laughs> that like gay men are like a few like the only people left in the world who actually have to like confront death on a daily basis and um mm-hmm. through experiences with the rectum and like with uh you know bleeding and uh a divorced relationship from the mother basically it's like uh mm-hmm aware gay people are like the last uh, few individuals on earth who like can uh, really keep trying to make this art. So I don't, I don't know. Cause um, gay people haven't been making anything very interesting lately. It's like uh, Gaspar Noe is uh, like one of the few artists I think is like still pushing forward. Uh, like Mike is as well. I'm excited to see what he keeps doing. Uh, so I don't know. I feel like, we ha- we have to manifest all of this uh, energy that's like floating around and uh, just keep pushing out whatever we can. Yeah, I, f- I feel like uh, we have a pet theory on this show that Mika is actually gay. Um, yeah. I don't know if that'll ever be confirmed or not, but he, I, I definitely get it. He codes <laughs> as gay, right? And I think, you know, what you said about, you know, living as a homosexual and, you know, constantly living under this kind of threat of either, you know, having your O-ring blown out or having somebody like kill you because they they don't know how to deal with these urges that they have. They're attracted to you, but they're not, but uh, but I'm not gay, but I'm not gay, right? Like 
it, it does create this sense of uh, kind of danger and on a lesser physically intense note. I mean, I don't know. I don't well, know. I don't know. If I was, well, <laughs> a, a, AIDS is I'm big. Just kidding, like a, a little bit. A, a, <laughs> no, you're totally right. Yeah. AIDS, AIDS is big. Um, but like, but also, I mean, you, you, I don't know. Recently, this has been kind of discussed, but I mean, people have really gotten, uh, they've returned back to some, uh, to some homophobia that I, I really, I genuinely thought was just like dead. Right. I mean, I kind of don't think about it. Uh, all of my favorite artists, thinkers, uh, people who've inspired me save maybe three or four people are gay. Uh, I, I guess I kind of thought homophobia was kind of something that we, that we left behind, but whew, yeah, I boy, was too. I wrong. I was wrong, wrong, <laughs> wrong. Boots, 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 wrong, wrong, wrong. It's like, <laughs> like I mean, you know, I always like kind of like tell a little bit, you know, that um, unartistically inclined people, people who just kind of, uh, you know, go on uh, NPC mode, like they always kind of have like a lurking disgust that I've uh, been aware of. But not until recently has it been so flat out. Has it just been so blatant? And it's it is shocking, isn't it? Where did this come from? Why why are people know. hating it's on crazy. you so much? You became Rumors. the main you, you you became the main character for about a week, right? And people That's are right. like, you're gonna you're gonna fucking die, uh, AIDS ridden and alone and shit. I I think I saw something like that. I don't yes. know. Uh, that, but, uh, I, I heard that in all sorts of iterations. My favorite one um, that someone said was that I'm going to drown in my own incontinent shit because my asshole is going to be so loose in 30 years. Jesus Christ. Oh, I was dear. like, damn, okay, that's kind of like, that's a good read though. Like, let me write that one down <laughs> later. I, but... <laughs> I, I know a bunch of old, I, I know I know a surprising amount of old gay dudes and, you know, I mean, they they've, they'll tell you some crazy shit. They'll be like, oh yeah, I've had, you know, three dicks in my ass, or whatever. But I mean, they're fine. They're they're walking around. The human body is a true marvel with how much uh how much it can take, I guess. Yeah, I don't know is. what I'm saying. Uh but no, yeah, it's been it's been uh really kind of I don't know, it's been kind of it's been kind of shocking because you know, I I've lived most of my life uh, believing that I was a person who was on the political left, which left and right really don't mean anything anymore. It's all right. bullshit. doesn't matter. Uh, but I think that, you know, what I've always kind of believed in is, uh, I don't know, just leave people alone and whatever you want to do is, is fine if it's with your own body. And uh, I do, but I also very kind of strongly believe in the differences of the uh, different types of people. Right. So that, doesn't make me get along with left-wing people because I'll be like, you know, gay people do this shit or, you know, black people do this shit. And everybody wants to say, no, we're all this kind of, you know, charcoal tinted slush that is all the same. Uh, but, uh, but I don't know, you know, the, the, the thing is, is that I moved away from that kind of political leaning more towards, a, I guess you could say a right ide ideology of things. And what, mm -hmm attracted me to it so much was I'm like, oh my God, you know, like right-wing politics minus 
uh, like homophobia and like really serious racism. Okay. Like not like, not jokey, not, uh, you know, sometimes uncomfortable truths, but like real racism. I'm like, Oh, this is a, this is a fun home for me. And then this past week I've been like, Oh, I'm homeless again. <laughs> I, I don't know way. where to go. I mean, I don't, I don't even like, know. it's like, um, I, I, I'm honestly speechless about it. I have like no idea except to just like lean in more. And you know what, if people want to be furious, gay bashers, you know, if they want to do Matthew Shepard on the world stage or whatever, like by all means, because um, like the more that I'm uh, ostracized or characterized as some kind of uh, outsider, that is just more fucking material for my damn book. So yeah. by all means, like keep it up. Like I am completely fine with being uh, ostracized from it all because it kind of just ends up proving my point. So I'm happy to, you know, kind of rewield that energy into uh, doing something actually shocking again. And, uh, you know, I really didn't ever think that like drag queens would ever be like another point of contention about you know drag kids and children at drag mm-hmm. shows and groomers like it seems very uh pre-boiled very dated uh but i mean if people are going to be afraid of drag queens again i guess i'm all for that why not fuck yeah let's go i support that 100 uh not that you need my support but anyway there it is but i, I love uh... to have it <laughs> <laughs> but please give me more um no, you, yeah, I was are watching. you saying you're an ally? Fuck no. Um, do you support no. drag kids? Are you no. a pedophile? No, what I love, what I love, even more than pedophilia, is uh freaks, <laughs> right? I love I love freaks. And oh. that's one of the th- when you're talking about these kind of domesticated gays, it's so sad for me to see that kind of shit because I'm not a freaky person. I'm extremely mad, uh, like uh, meat and potatoes. Uh, it's just the way my brain was made, right? I was born this way, you might say. Um, yeah, this like, you're on the right like track, missionary, baby. missionary. I do missionary. like missionary. I do like mission. It is good. You can see the titties bounce. It's a good position. Um, but I don't. I've always I've loved to surround myself and be around freaks and freaky people. And once those things began to be co-opted into again that kind of slush. It's a little disappointing, right? And as a person who is, uh, you know, very basic in terms of my tastes, it's kind of, uh, you know, there's no real skin in the game for me to say something like this, but I'll say it anyway. Like, I like that you guys are out there being fucking weirdos. It's cool. Like, I I want more of that in my life uh, as a spectator. And yeah, because it's interesting, I, right? Like, I mean, yeah, Mark, like right. Murakami books are all about freaks. Like, Mickey movies are about freaks. Like, Japanese media in general tends to be about, you know, people on the outside because that's where people look, you know, from wherever they're they're sitting in the world. And uh, I'm quite all right with being, like, a perverse uh, icon. Great. And I love that you, yeah. when you were talking about, like, the uh, Drag Race alumni who, like, come to Texas, I love that you're seeing, like, the... B and C listers because that's where it gets like weird and icky again because uh, right. those gay people are famous but they're not quite ready for it so they they get to be a mess still <laughs> so there's like great like margins there that are ripe for exploration but I mean I think Agitator is like such a special project because both of you look at you know this 
art that's very like alien from your own experience about people completely different from you. Uh, and instead of like uh, doing, you know, identity politics about it or like, uh, right. you know, dissecting it in that, you know, art podcaster way. Um, it's like a long form narrative about like your your two relationship with the world and each other and your kids. And oh, my God, it's like so special. And I, I think everyone kind of uh, pooling together to, to put their voice out there in this long form medium is uh, it's a datura and I'm, I'm ready to spill it all. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, I'm glad that you're writing too, because I, I really think the answer is to just make good freaky art. And uh, a lot of the psyop was making it all seem real, either meaningless or corny, you know, to be like, or, you know, you know, it's a, uh, it's a hopeless pursuit it's a losing battle or it's gay and corny and like that was all just a a psyop to keep you from just perpetuating good freaky difficult to digest complicated aggressive and necessary art yeah i mean i'm just so glad when i read your book i was like oh my god people are still like doing something like bold i mean like I um I, I read like a few new books every year. Like I read um the latest Sally Rooney novel. Uh, I'll read the new Otessa Moshfeg novel, I guess. And uh, yeah. I mean, even that can be kind of like Evangelion LCL, and uh, it can be you know a little depressing. But I mean, then you just like look a little bit to the right, and you see like uh, Adam Lair's new book and what you two are working on, and it, it's very affirming and exciting. And I think great things are gonna keep coming out of it. You know, what's really funny about Otessa's uh, breakout book. So she wrote this amazing book called McGlue. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. McGlue is like this really uh, hallucinatory gay sailor story. Uh, That's it's very visceral. It's very Dennis Cooper, right? It's like it's got a lot of uh, bodily stuff going on in it. And McGlue came out. I still I have the first printing. and she didn't really get like a, a super like like huge uh, response from that book, right? I remember when it came out and, you know, and she was obviously very talented, but uh, not necessarily like the kind of breakout star. And then she did something that I fucking, I will love forever. So with she writing- I, with Eileen, right? With <laughs> Eileen, she, uh, what she did is she bought an, a book called The 90 Day Novel right? Which is this kind of self-help, uh, you know, when you read it, it's, it's kind of bullshit. It's like day four. Who, who are your characters? What do they want? Right? But she, <laughs> she followed the 90-day novel to write Eileen. And I love this idea that she channeled this weirdo, uh, you know, energy into a kind of like, you know, the Patrick Swayze character from Donnie Darko, like everything's about hate and love. Like the ability to, to channel that we got Eileen, which is, you know, fucking fantastic. My year of uh, rest and relaxation, it, I thought was really good. I like that book. I loved it too. 
people want to hate on her. I think she's an icky, like interesting. She seems to be kind of based as well. Like she's I a mean, little bit. Like, she's but she's 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 hot too. She's good looking. Oh, she is hot, and I love that she is like leaning into her fame monster. Like she's like walking on the literal runway. Like <laughs> it's incredible. Um, I can't wait for her new book, and uh, I I just you know gr- good for her, and no one can tell me not to like her. Yeah. Have you read any of her books, Kelby? Oh yeah, yeah. McGlue, uh, that collection, Homesick for Another Homesick World. For another for another world, world yeah. Is, yeah. yeah, that's great. Some good ass books. Some good ass books. Well, I wanted to kind of wrap this talk up with, uh, are you guys familiar with the Arrowhead Vault? No. Okay, so the Arrowhead Vault. Oh, oh wait, vault, the Arrowhead Vault. Is this like the no. the Arrowid, E-R-O-W-I-D. It's uh, it's an old internet spot where people recount their drug experiences, right? So you can go there and look up, you know, I took uh, 20 hits of LSD. Guess what happened? There is a page for Detora. Um, And (laughs) it's a real thing that is used in many initiatory rituals. Mostly it appears in India, uh, the Vajra, the whatever, it's a Tantra ritual where people take the Torah. But under the experiences tab, here are some of the titles. Elemental insights, truly the devil's weed, mouth of madness, a mystical sword fight with Musashi, and on a third day, I regained my ability to read, right? So people will find the Dachshund plant's a seed. Um, and I knew that this plant sounded familiar when I was reading this book. And it's because I had been through the Arrowwood Vault and read about this. And when you read the experiences of people taking this, it be, it's the most horrifying shit you could possibly imagine. Pretty much everybody who who writes an experience story they're writing it after they got out of the mental hospital or jail and they put the seeds into a cigarette and they smoke it uh, usually a very small amount and what it essentially does is it immediately starts making you hallucinate there are things i've seen here about seeing uh, polar bears and uh, talking to people who are not there and feeling the need uh, PCP like to strip off your clothes and go outside and, you know, uh, dance around like some kind of weird pagan freak. Um, but anyway, so Datura is real and it does fuck you up. Wow. <laughs> I'm just imagining like this happening like on mass to the entirety of Tokyo. Yeah. <laughs> pretty fucking weird right have Let's you ever uh, th- this is, this is, a, yeah. this is such a fucking corny like question but have you ever tripped balls have you ever just gone nuts yes I um, I love acid I mean I haven't cool. done any drugs in Japan haha <laughs> um, but <laughs> before I moved I definitely had a very like um, long period of uh, experimenting with psychedelics and um, I love lsd and i got trapped in like a in a tunnel sitting on a couch for about uh, 30 minutes where i felt all of reality just rushing right in front of me i could like see uh infinitely and i just like felt my entire being like going through a series of rings and then i had like 
10 cigarettes in a row after that. And uh, I think it really informed a lot of my worldview. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Psychedelics and shaping worldview are like, that just goes hand in hand. I think I trust, I automatically trust anyone a little bit more when they're like, yeah, I had a really crazy psychedelic experience. I'm like, okay. More yeah, I love to believe what you say. I just love it. I love. I think psychedelic drugs are a very necessary thing for young people to try at least a few times. Is that a good subscription to make? I don't know. That's a good thing. To I say. think. So. No, I, I think good, so. Good. <laughs> I, th- I think so. Hundred percent. Yeah. Well, the th- the thing is, is that in cultures, every culture has initiatory rites. Um, there's the famous South American bullet ant ritual where people will weave gloves uh, with these uh, ants in them that have a sting that is on the pain index, which is a real thing, uh, apparently more painful than a, a bullet wound, right? So they'll make these gloves and they'll put bullet ants in them and then their manhood ritual is to stick their hands in the glove and walk around for about 30 minutes and i watched a vice documentary on this and (laughs) one of the uh you know white american dumbasses uh who goes and and, you know tries to uh, you know participate in this thing uh becomes just this sort of out of it blubbering mess But the point of an initiatory ritual, especially with men, is that women already have initiatory rituals, which is their period and childbirth. They don't need to go through any more pain because uh, God did that for them. But men don't. And maybe this ties back into what we were talking about, where all these cultures had had things like scarification or uh, circumcision or bullet ant rituals, all these things that you have to go through to sort of experience uh, to have limit experiences, right. Of, of the other side. And I think 100% your prescription that young people should have psychedelic initiatory experiences is absolutely 100% true because for me, it's like, I don't know. I went through a phase. It was about a 10 year phase, but a phase, right. And it was, you know, acid and mushrooms and the biggest ones were peyote and, DMT, right? Those were the big, those are the big bad boys, right? DMT in particular, uh, can't really describe it. Uh, big light dragon, uh, definitely saw the machine elves, all this kind of stuff, but you come out the other side and you just know. And when anybody asks you what it is that, you know, you're like, I don't know. I just, I just get it. I just, <laughs> I kind of get everything, but those experiences are extremely important for young people, young men in particular, I think to go through. So uh, I don't know if Datura would be the one to do, <laughs> but, but really if we're, per, if we're, you know, kind of sarin gassing uh, everybody with this kind of stuff, it's not really like they have a choice to begin with. So, no. all right. Well, I think that that was the definitive coin locker babies podcast. That's what I labeled this meeting. That's what I think we pulled off. Uh, Zach, I am immensely grateful for you as a person. I think you're great. Uh, And for your podcasts, I'm just, I'm extremely glad that you exist and that you're making this cool stuff. And I am endlessly humbled and honored that you'd come on and talk about this 
long ass fucked up book with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. I'm obsessed with both of you. Thank you for what you do, and we'll just to keep doing it together. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. LFG nigga. <laughs> we had to get one in. Yeah, we had to get one to. in before the end. Yeah.